0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.
1: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Our guest today is Ezie Edugean. The author joins us to discuss her latest book, a collection of non fiction writing, Out of the Sun Essays at the Crossroads of Race. Canadian novelist and writer Ezie Edugian's previous books have taken creative paths into complex subjects. They include 2014's Half-Blood Blues, which used mid-20th century jazz musicians as its inspiration to highlight lost cultural narratives, and 2018's Washington Black, a historical tale tinged with fantasy, but one with its roots set in the brutal realities of the 19th century slave trade. The latter is now being adapted for an upcoming TV show, And both books won Canada's Giller Prize while also being shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize too. In her new book, Out of the Sun, Ezzie brings us a selection of non-fiction writing, thought pieces reflecting on black identity within the arts throughout the past few centuries. The book's five essays visit the cultural landscapes of Canada and the US, plus locations across Europe, Africa and Asia, while also reflecting on the author's own sense of place as a creative with an ongoing story. As she reflects in the book, who you are is not who others see. Our host today is the curator, art historian, writer and presenter, Andrea Amelife. Here's Andrea with more.
2: I'm so glad to talk to you. I read your book in record speed. Honestly, I couldn't put it down. What made you write this book now? I know you have a background in fiction. How did this book come about? This book actually came about
3: because I was approached by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation And asked to do their Massey lecture uh, for the year, which is a series of five lectures on um, any topic of your choosing. But, you know, understanding that I was a writer who wrote primarily um, about sort of hidden Black histories, I, you know, I, I understood that that would be the topic I would take on. And this project really allowed me to do that in a much more sort of, I guess, direct and sharpened way than in a novel. Um, You know, I could really tackle these marginalized histories, you know, that I probably wouldn't get to writing about in novel form, simply because I won't, you know, live to be 200. And there are so many uh, Mm -hmm. to write about, you know, to do it in a very direct way, also in which I could kind of give my own perspective or or opinion.
2: Can you tell me a bit about your journey into writing? Yeah, I'm somebody who, uh, you know, as
3: as a child, I was a great reader. I read everything I could get my hands on. And, you know, when I was graduating, I guess, from high school and knowing that I wanted to attend university, I had to settle on something to study. It was either going to be uh, visual arts or it was going to be writing. And, you know, simply because I think I think I settled on writing because I had told my parents about my choices and, and I think they were a little bit alarmed,
2: uh, but... They were reassured. My but, parents were yeah. too. <laughs> African parents still love art history as a choice. <laughs> yeah, cool. yeah, exactly.
3: So, but I, you know, I think my mother was heartened by the idea or she was, she was at least maybe reassured a bit by the idea that I could study journalism uh, alongside mm. studying creative writing. And so I went into the writing program, which had this kind of journalism component. And I, I believe I took one journalism class and that was it. Uh, I was, you know, I was done with that, and I was studying poetry uh, and, and fiction and, and
2: um, playwriting, and and then that took over. What really struck home for me, which is also a part of the work I do and part of a commission for diversity in the public realm, which is a committee looking at democratising public art, is looking at the past. And you talk so well about how confronting the past is vital. I wanted to ask you how you feel the best ways to articulate history to new generations can be forged in a time where there's so much discussion about how to expand history and how to look at the past in new ways. Yeah,
3: I like that phrase that you just used, this idea of expanding history, because I think right now we seem to be going through a time where there's, you know, it's quite a contentious thing. People are very nervous about this idea of having what they viewed as, you know, established, settled histories kind of uprooted or, or uh, displaced. But I look at it as this idea of expanding our notions of stories or facts that we, you know, that we all know, but where we haven't kind of really looked at certain hidden aspects or or certain figures who who may be uh, featured in a story but aren't sort of collectively remembered socially. So it's it's something where, you know, I feel like this has been a very interesting time where we are having these conversations about stories that have been maybe, uh, I guess, sidelined uh, in favour of other narratives. And, you know, but I really do see it as an enlargement that, these hidden histories of, of figures who were you know, perhaps figures of color, these are part of our collective idea of history, and, and we should be speaking about these people.
2: I, I completely agree, and I kept thinking, especially in the first chapters of the book or James Baldwin's quote, history is not the past, it's present, we carry our history with us, we are history. Um, and it also made me think about how people think that in expanding history, we are turning away from historical narratives that have been more concrete or we are erasing history or we are forgetting history what would you say to that argument because a lot of a lot of people defend for example um keeping up contentious statues or not changing the curriculum with this argument
3: i mean it's so fraught isn't it I think to (laughs) Yeah, it's such a large question. I mean, we could speak about that single question, I think, you know, for the entire interview and and never come to a set conclusion. But this idea that to include histories that have maybe been marginalized or or sidelined uh, is to expunge, you know, the existing record or or to somehow damage it. I, you know, I think that that's something that we need to change our thinking on collectively. It's not to I guess shed light or include or recognize these kind of, I guess, hidden figures for lack of a better term, is, is not to erase what we all can already see and have, have already uh, seen. You know, history is, it's a living thing. I mean there's a study of history, historiography, which is looking at the shifting patterns of how we view past events and past figures. I mean, this is not something that is settled and established and we come to a bedrock decision on, and then we, we never speak of it again. You know, that this is something where we have to continually be recontextualizing how we view certain events, you know, because there are blind spots. There are things that we we haven't really taken the time to look at. And this can come out of positionality, you know, who's been sort of in the center and relaying those histories from that more centered perspective, you know, or, or simply just because of a, a failure to actually... I guess, engage with the fuller picture. You know, at the heart of this book was this idea of trying to look at certain historical stories uh, but also contemporary ones that we, you know, maybe haven't really looked at in a very direct way. Uh, And in the case where we do know those figures uh, or those stories to give them, I guess, a new context by juxtaposing them with, with stories that we don't know. Uh, which I guess gives both stories, this idea of the established past that's being recontextualized, uh, but also the fresher story, uh, giving that a sort of
2: more historical context, that this makes us see things a little bit differently. When I talk to people about the, the idea of erasure and how that can be a threat to people, often try and flip the coin and say, will threat feels so much within yourself. Imagine the emotion or the feeling of not seeing yourself within history in the first place, mm. because I think it almost in itself uncovers how emotional history and the stories we tell is if it then becomes a threat not to have that be the status quo. And so I really enjoyed reading your discussion about the renaming of works in the Le Model Noir show at the musée For the benefit of the listeners, a lot of works um, of Black sitters have been categorized by simple labels such as negress and in this exhibition they changed that around it was quite a radical thing and in your discussion you talk about whether it should be renamed permanently whether we should have both titles both labels so that we can remember the ugliness of our time and so thinking a bit more broadly about this I'm interested to hear your views and how that extends to other artworks to contentious monuments for example how do we figure out what to remove or what to recontextualize Even though removal in some cases is probably easier or better for the emotional well being of people. You know, statuary
3: seems like something rooted in the past, or, you know, because we're not sort of always erecting in our current day statuary to prominent figures. But there is something, you know, as you're moving through certain spaces. To have these kind of bold figures looming over you as you're moving through, say, the central square of a given city, that's a very powerful thing. Um, And that's a very powerful statement. And, you know, I remember my partner, he did his graduate work in Charlottesville in Virginia, and we lived a bit of a distance from the campus. I lived there with him in the summertime, and we would take the bus from his apartment to downtown Charlottesville, and we would always pass by this statue standing very boldly, uh, looking sort of very upright and dignified. And they were surrounded by indigenous men who were on their knees, kind of looking pleadingly up mm. at them. And every time we passed it, we just felt just this profound shock and discomfort. And you know, we we sort of <laughs> started asking people about it, and you know, this is about fifteen years ago. Uh, before we were having deeper conversations about the removal of statuary. But it was very interesting. Like People had sort of just absorbed it. And I think because we came from abroad as Canadians, you know, we were very sensitive to it. But it sort of establishes a kind of narrative of dominance, right? Uh, and and this is something that can't help but play upon the psyches of anybody who is having to move past it uh, on a daily basis. It's, it's really uncomfortable. You know, and we in Canada, obviously, over the last few years, we've been having our own conversations about you know removing statues. And in fact, in the the city of Victoria where I live, uh, the we uh, there was a removal of the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald, uh, who was one of our founding fathers, and his statue was taken out of the square because obviously his uh, his record with the Indigenous people was uh, was quite shameful, um, among other things. Uh, but as I discuss in the essays, in terms of uh, how do we approach art that his labels that maybe to a contemporary ear they're just offensive to us. You know, it's it's very difficult. There are just so many different responses that we could have to this. So one of them would be to keep the statue of, for instance, Sir John A. Macdonald uh, standing, but erect a kind of plaque or or something on it. Uh, that explains the contentiousness of his perspective, you know, because it's very it's a very difficult thing. You know, he was so central to the founding of the nation of Canada, uh, that this was somebody who was so central that it seems, you know, it's a difficult thing to sort of say we're going to expunge this person entirely, uh, you know, from the record. Uh, and, and so, you know, but I, I really don't feel that we could just leave these statues to stand without some kind of recontext, so you know that was that was one thought. Another thing that occurs to me, and that I was sort of discussing with somebody, was a kind of counter statuary. Uh, so to erect the statue of a marginalized figure whose history we we don't know much about, perhaps a figure of color, uh, somewhere within the vicinity of the statue, uh, and and have that stand as a kind of I guess enlargement of our you know, a sense of history from that era, you know, I'm giving a very long, fulsome answer, which I tend to do. So you can stop me anytime. But one of the things that I was so interested in when I spent some time uh, living in Europe, and a bit of my time was spent living in Budapest, I just remember, you know, traveling with a friend outside of Budapest to, I think it was called Statue Park, I could be wrong. But it was basically a kind of resting place for all of the statuary that had been erected uh, during the Stalinist era, uh, which had been pulled down and then carted outside of the city and then put into this park where you could go and view all of these, you know, statues of uh, all of these Stalinist figures. But you know, within a certain context. And so they weren't destroyed, but they were recontextualized and and it gave you a real sense of the era and and also what the city would have looked like, you know, maybe dominated by all of these very uh, dramatic statues. But, you know, they weren't left to stand. And to me, it was a real history lesson getting to go to Statue Park and and walking through it and having that sense of history. So I thought, well, maybe that's something that other societies could consider is is, if you're going to remove the statuary is is putting it in a place where it's recontextualized. And that could even be, maybe not an art museum, but just within a A sort of historic...
2: Yeah, exactly. There was something really interesting that you wrote in your book when you were discussing about going through the museum when you were a child, I think, and not really seeing yourself within it. Um, it's something that I had as well growing up. But again, it's these ideas about how to expand obviously within the general sense in terms of the public realm, in terms of curriculum, but also there's something very political in what you see and what you don't see and how history is articulated that way. And again, in the same chapter, I think it is the Kahinda Wiley I'm thinking about and how he is in the most bombastic and um, powerful way reclaiming the Black image in a very traditional way. Um, sense. I, I would love to hear more about your thoughts about Kehinde Wiley and why you use him as an example I mean he is a great example of it there's a great show in the National Gallery currently but what do you think the role of the artist is now when they're trying to investigate the past for contemporary audiences?
3: What I love about the work of Kehinde Wiley and, and also you know other painters who are working in a similar mode um, I write a little bit about Harmonia Rosales, um, who's Mm. also an American painter, who paints in this mode where she's presenting black figures, in her case, very similar to Wiley's, taking paintings of the Renaissance uh, and, and, you know, right up into the 19th century and and sort of putting black figures within these contexts, her most... controversial piece was one in which she painted uh, the figure of God as a black woman. Wow. And this was a very contentious thing that created, I guess, a bit of an uproar. But, uh, you know, I really feel like it's not a kind of literal, I guess, a a literal rewriting of history, uh, if we're going to speak about it like that. There's really this sort of works in the realm of supposition and and also in shattering um, our ideas of, of blackness of at that time, or even in just getting us to think about the improbability of certain images. And then that sort of forcing us to think of, well, what were black lives like at that time in that era in this nation? So I really feel like painters like uh, Rosales and, and Wiley are, as you say, in this very bombastic way, kind of forcing us to look in a new way at black histories and forcing us into a confrontation about the historical place of of black people, particularly in Europe, uh, from the Renaissance onwards. It's a very kind of, um, I guess, maybe contemporary expression of black agency that comes through as well.
1: Code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV.
2: Why do you think it's taken so long for us to get to a point? when, you know, for example National Gallery can have Kinder of Wiley, or when, you know, I remember going to the Tate and seeing Lynette Iodembriaco's work and having people say, Oh, it's so great to have, you know, an entire gallery full of black faces just living, not being you know, not enrolled in the, role of the major or of the slave, just, you know, living life. What has changed in your opinion in recent years where these sorts of exhibitions can happen or these artists are becoming more celebrated, or we are more, I guess, ready to see Black histories and investigate them. What has the shift really been? Um, I'm currently in the mode of curating an exhibition about Black women in visual culture, and I'm struggling to find a great historical precedent of many exhibitions like this. And as a young historian, I find that perhaps alarming, but Obviously, there's a legacy of othering, but I'd like to hear your opinion about what is happening in the current moment and why people are more receptive to hearing and exploring these stories more.
3: You know, I would love to hear your perspective on that uh, because you are somebody who's very much rooted in art history and curation. And and so I would like to hear, you know, what you think has changed. You know, I certainly think this sort of global uh I guess, for lack of a better word, reckoning, although I don't know that that's quite accurate, but a a global reckoning on race and its kind of global convulsion that we all sort of awoke to after the death of George Floyd. You know, I feel like people were very interested to know more intimately about black lives and black histories And so I think there is that, you know, I think we we might be finding ourselves in a place of backlash in certain ways right now. But I do feel like that was something that very much uh, broke open this discussion about uh, black visibility. Uh, and, and wanting to know more about black writers and, you know, black artists. But maybe you can speak more about that in a contemporary sense, just what you're seeing and what you think.
2: Um, I was thinking as you were talking, yeah, a couple of things crossed my mind, kind of when I was reading about Dido mm. in, the, in the, who you discussed discussing in the book. Um, and I remember seeing a picture in a museum once I think it's a national portrait gallery I have to double check but wondering why there wasn't as much focus then and I think I was just before I was studying art history and wondering why it was you know presented on the wall but it wasn't given much focus I think there's been a widespread nervousness about exploring these histories because I guess it also just means that you have to explore a lot of other things which are uncomfortable and history can be uncomfortable, but that allows us to move forward, which I guess is why I kind of see the sort of rise of Black artists or Black exhibitions aligning with also the rise of, you know, Black literature and Black history documentaries and Black historians, um, because I guess it's that readiness to, and I don't know if we are actually ready or if everyone is ready, but maybe we're more ready, to confront an uncomfortable truth because it kind of opens the gates for a lot of things but I think yeah that's my feeling about the general consensus about sort of I guess some current thinking but there's still a lot of people to convince and a lot more stories and perspectives to understand and to develop and to also see positively not to see it as a chore or as a apologising it should be seen as a curiosity because isn't it exciting that there's this whole world of art and of literature and of history that we just haven't been paying attention to. And I guess that's probably why I rushed through your book so quickly because there was so much, you know, perspectives that I hadn't thought of, like the, you know, thinking about ghost stories and how, you know, the stories that we are told are even not marginalised, but even uh, sort of uh, cut or put into a box. We're not. There is no expansiveness even even in that um, sense. In fact, it'd be great to think about and to discuss that chapter and why you put that in. Because when I stumbled across that, I was quite surprised, but really enjoyed it.
3: Yeah, and just to pick up on something that you mentioned, though, you know, I think this idea of this, you know, this interest in um, you know, and seeing these black histories and and you know black art, um, black writing. I you know I think that I think it's absolutely apt what you've what you've said. I do wonder if this is something that will be more lasting. You know, if if now that we have kind of opened this door and and there's this interest. Will the interest be something that's kind of seen as something novel and in the moment, or have we opened the door in a more meaningful and lasting way? You know, is this something where we've now enlarged our sense of, you know, of what art is by including uh, voices that have been sort of othered, you know, or or is this just something where um, it's of the moment and... And, and it will be kind of passing. You know, I say this because I've been having so many conversations with Black writers who saw themselves as very sought out, um, you know, in 2020, that suddenly they had sort of these platforms to to speak, but who are finding themselves, you know, in 2022, uh, as as not being sort of as, <laughs> as sought out. The interest is, you know, is they felt was not sort of as as lasting and so you you know you already
2: that's really quick yeah it is <laughs> that's, wow but, i had i would never have thought that that's interesting <laughs> yeah and and
3: i think you mentioned this idea of of the discomfort you know that is attendant with this project of of enlarging um you know enlarging our sense of of uh, i guess history uh, and yeah. and also our artists and and I think that I think that that's absolutely it. That's absolutely where this this kind of turning away begins to happen is because there is that discomfort of being made to confront kind of less savory parts of of one's history that that maybe you know, were, were sort of shoved into a, a dark corner or, or remained unaired until now, or that, that you know, one didn't have to confront. One knew that, that you know, that it was there, but one didn't have to look uh, directly at it. Um, and so, you know, so I think there is a lot of discomfort inherent in that. and And so I think, you know, we can see, in some respects, a kind of turning away. But to, I mean, to talk about the... The ghost stories that that you brought up, you know, I think for me it was just interesting to to think about ghost stories as being sort of a kind of secret history of any kind of given region or even within a city. And this idea of not telling uh, certain ghost stories or, or living with the understanding or the knowledge uh, that certain communities had existed in a certain region But we know nothing of, of, you know, we don't tell ghost stories uh, out of those cultures. You know, that was very interesting to me. And it was, you know, yet another kind of way that we're sort of marginalizing, in this case, kind of secret histories. Uh, You know, what does that say about history as a whole of these are are voices
2: that were, or these are stories that we're not uh, looking directly at? I found it fascinating to think that there's so many different strands of the human experience that can be expanded. And reading about those ghost stories, I started thinking about stories that my mother would have told me, Um, my mother's Nigerian, Um, and think about those tales. And I actually asked her to send me some of them because I wanted to remember them because I hadn't thought about them since then um, because even though I am Nigerian I'm very much British and then reading about your travels to Ghana and thinking about the nuances of diasporic identity and because I think that there's so much left undiscovered or unprobed about what it means to be a diaspora or what it means to Belong to two places, but also what that means in how we navigate and investigate history to find out more about ourselves.
3: There is this kind of sense of uh, homecoming, or it does feel, especially growing up through my childhood, in which we, you know, I I didn't uh, get a chance to visit Ghana until I was, you know, well into my 20s. Um, uh, We, you know, we simply didn't have the money to travel as a family. Back to Ghana, but I I did always have this sense of it as being a kind of home, you know, especially uh, in those times where you felt a little bit alienated from, you know, I grew up on the Canadian Prairie in the 1980s, and there weren't a lot of people who who looked like me, yeah. Um, And so, you know, to have this sense of, you know, well across, you know, so many miles away, there is this kind of ancestral home in which, you know, I might. visit and and feel at ease that this was something that was very powerful to me and it was something you know that I did really want to feel a deeper connection to and and learn those histories Uh, even while you know we were never taught to speak uh, any Ghanaian languages within our home you know we we would sort of hear our parents speaking and and it was a kind of secret language uh, between them you know as we grew up as you know, we speak french and english so the national languages of of, of canada but we never you know spoke chi or fante and so but we you know we still have this intense connection to this place that was you know almost a place of the imagination you could kind of uh, imbue it with i guess with your own sense of of uh, whatever it is you wanted it to be and so to to actually travel there and you know to to feel in some sense, in a lot of ways, profoundly at home, because there was so much that was just, you know, instantly recognizable, you know, about the cultures, you know, whether it was the food, or the language, or the clothing, and to feel very much, you know, connected to those things. Uh, there was also a kind of, I guess, sense of alienation or unrootedness and, and there were ways in which we were constantly being told uh, not in words but being told by the locals that you know we were not in fact of them you know we weren't we weren't actual Ghanaians and so there was this kind of sense of confronting i guess an imagined home that had you know the parameters had shifted um, mm. in that confrontation but even having said that, like it, it didn't feel, you know, I didn't walk away with any lesser sense of
2: connection to Ghana. It, it just was maybe a changed connection. In your book, you talk about colorism and the parameters of race from The one-drop rule, which is basically one drop from a distant relative, could categorize you as black historically, but also just thinking about what blackness means and how you can attach yourself to blackness or how you identify with certain elements of yourself and how you perceive them. And use Rachel Dolezal as an example, and I remember reading about her a few years ago and haven't thought about it since. But you spoke quite interestingly about the idea of transracialism and how that idea in itself is interesting and confusing because we talk so much about transgenderism and we are very much for that, or at least I am and most people that I know can understand that experience. And yet transracialism, or the case of Richard Dolezal, had a lot of discomfort with people which i very much understand i'd be interested to see if your opinion has changed or if it's developed since then because i think that that idea is something that will constantly evolve or at least my opinion will constantly evolve because it's so attached to how we as humanity shift and see the world
3: yeah i agree i mean We're constantly, I guess, re-establishing our relationship to certain fixed ideas that we have. I mean, this idea of, I guess, transracialism, you know, I understand on an intellectual level, just on a, a level of pure thought, that this is absolutely something that does exist, that there are people who you know, are born into one race that feel that it doesn't express who they are um, inside. You know, when I think of a figure like Rachel Dolezal, you know, I feel a sense of, maybe a sense of encroachment. She's perhaps sort of a less apt figure to talk about when I talk about my issues with transracialism. Maybe uh, the other figure uh, who I discuss in the essay, Jessica Krug. Mm. might be a, a better example in that there feels something or there seemed to be something a little bit opportunistic uh, in the way that she went about that and, and the way that she went about occupying spaces um, and, and really being, you know, a, a strong, strong voice for anti-racism, which is obviously allyship is a wonderful thing. But her kind of belligerent uh, way of of going about things and also occupying spaces that would likely have gone to academics of color you know these are very problematic things you know things that I think yeah are really problematic and and really kind of
2: go against
3: this idea of transracialism.
2: I think what it also highlights is the idea of privilege because mm. it couldn't happen the other way around mm-hmm. um, because there's, there's so many reasons. And I think that's part of it. It seems like the last great privilege is that after a history of oppression, you can also assimilate and benefit from that too.
3: Yeah, and it is a privilege that's basically in the hands of those who can more... Uh, authentically make that change or not authentically, but who can sort of, I guess uh, who phenotypically look a certain way. you know this is a privilege that's that's confined to those who can con- maybe convincingly uh, is the word cross that that racial line. And so you know, it feels like another expression of agency and power that's that's maybe within the hands of of those who can most convincingly pass. and so that, You know, that's also something interesting uh, to look at. But also, I think this idea with a figure like Dolezal that she has not sort of come out of black histories, you know, her family sort of doesn't come out of a kind of middle passage history, and, and therefore the arguments maybe against her transracialism are rooted in this, this this explicit idea of her, you know, not living, I guess, living out the legacy of of that, that that's something that is very offensive, I think to a lot of people who have I guess seen her her transformation as something transgressive. Mm. And also, you know there's there's also a sense of people have spoken about as as being caricatured, uh, you know just in, in the darkening of her skin and and the changing of, of her hairstyle, that there's a sense of caricature or, or even blackface that emerges from that. But these are all kind of evolving uh, discussions that we're having. I mean, who will know? You know, we can't, we can't say uh, that in 50 years this won't be something that is, you know, very much a part of contemporary society. I mean... You never know. You never know. <laughs> so... Uh, but at present, uh, it remains a very contentious and um, controversial thing. But, you know, in that piece, I wasn't sort of interested in coming to any solid conclusions, because I personally don't, you know, don't have any, I understand what's in my heart. Um, and this is conflicted by what's, you know, what's in my head. And so it's it's just something that falls in a kind of gray area. But You know, I like that we're having these
2: conversations because I think they have to be had. I like that you had a piece of writing that didn't come to any conclusions as well, because I think going back to the discussion we had earlier, I think a lot of the worry or the trepidation about approaching Black history is, is about getting the stance right or getting the opinion or conclusion correct um, from institutions not coming from a position of exploration or conversation or debate rather how do we articulate this perfectly and if we can't let's not do it I think we should have more writing or exhibitions or anything that's confronting these new histories with a position that it can be exploratory, it doesn't have to be definitive, just having conversations is important and valuable. And you use a really great phrase, which I'm going to have to cite and use in future because it advocates for these ideas so perfectly. you. I think it was about Wiley's work when you said it was a plea to recognize humanity. I think that struck a chord with me because that is really what expanding histories and uh, reading about and understanding new facets of the world should be. Yeah, I mean,
3: first of all, I would say that people seem very uncomfortable with ambiguity uh, these days. We sort of want definitive uh, opinions and definitive answers and, and then we can sort of clash about them. Uh, but I think that any kind of uh, reconciliation is to be found within those ambiguities is, you know, the understanding that not everything is, is settled and established. Um, when you get to those hardened places, that's when you have those clashes. History is a living thing and is constantly shifting and, and changing. And our, our points of view are changing and our points of reference are changing. That this isn't something to fear. to fight against, but to embrace. I think I was listening to uh, a podcast the other day about these parents fighting to keep, uh, it was a graphic novel about a young black man entering a new school, Uh, this, this kind of clash in Texas in the school board meeting to have this book taken out of the, I don't know if it was on the curriculum or if it was simply in the library, but the book was not something that was You know, my my daughter has read it several times. She loves it. And it's, you know, simply a book about a young Black man's experience entering a new school, uh, which is, you know, a school that's mainly uh, filled with white students. You know, the parents were taking issue with this idea of microaggressions and why should my child have to read something uh, that makes them feel bad? And, you know, we're not racists and all of this. And I think that that is such a limited view and so misses the point. You know, I think a child having to confront what it's like to encounter these microaggressions and to live in another's skin and to maybe have some thought about that. This is something that could change the actions of that child, just this this empathetic uh, view onto another's way of being. And paradoxically, I, I think that that's something that creates a sense of universality when we can see the experience of another and think of the ways in which we ourselves have been uh, mistreated or made to feel small, um, undervalued. Every human being on the planet has those feelings and those experiences. And to be able to see how it's a little bit you know, happening maybe in a different iteration in somebody else's life, but to understand at your core uh, what that bad feeling <laughs> felt like, you know, I think that this is the beginning of, of understanding and yeah, I guess rapprochement and a sense of us all being bound together in our
2: experience of being human. Um, and that's exactly, I guess, what history can uncover obviously it allows us to learn about other people and other countries and other lives but it also allows us to learn about ourselves which i very much did whilst reading your book that was essie adugin whose book out of the sun essays at the crossroads of race is out now from profile books you've been listening to intelligence squared i've been andrea Emily. thank you for listening
0: Find out more by going to www.intelligentsquared.com forward slash
3: partnerships.